Well, welcome back. It's nice to see such a nice crowd here today. Uh, some of you may be first time with us. We're delighted to have you. Feel free to, um, under normal circumstances, it would be rude to eat while somebody's speaking, but that's not the case here. So feel free to eat your lunches while I talk, and hopefully what I say won't give you indigestion. Uh, at least that's the hope. Um, this is an ongoing study of the book of Acts, and I'm not going to go back and review everything that we've done because we've covered a great deal of territory in Acts. But today we're going to pick up at Acts chapter 14. And we're going to read through the entire chapter because really Paul's work, his ministry in these three cities, these three Galatian cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, are best handled as a whole, as a set. And so we're going to read through the entire chapter. It's not an a particularly long chapter, and then we'll come back and look at it in closer detail. So, Acts chapter 14, uh, verses uh, 1 through the end of the chapter. And just a reminder, you can invite your friends. This is one of those studies where you can sort of pop in almost anywhere uh, along the route and still hopefully derive some sort of benefit. So, it's not one of these studies where you have to be there at the beginning. This is not like algebra. You have to be at the beginning, and if if you jump in halfway through the semester, you're going to be lost forever. I promise you that won't be the case. So Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelievers stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done this, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Uh, Incidentally, that's the scene that's depicted on the screen there. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium 
And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they gathered all that God had done with them, declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Acts chapter 13, the chapter that immediately precedes this one, is, if you recall from last semester uh, in the spring when we last met, is what I call a turning point in the Christian story. Uh, the book of Acts is a history of the early church. Uh, in particular, a history of the ministries of the two great apostles, Peter and Paul. In fact, that's one way you can divide up the book of Acts. There are a number of ways of doing it. But you can pretty much divide it up between the ministry of Peter in the first part of the book and the ministry of Paul in the second part of the book. So it's a history of the early church through the lives of those two apostles and their companions. And we said that the first part of the book, up to Acts chapter 13, is pretty much the church sharing its faith, but doing that in a somewhat reactive way. For example, in the case of, of Peter and John, we're told that on one occasion they made their way up to the temple at the appointed time of prayer. Now remember, these men were followers of Jesus Christ, but for the most part, they still regarded themselves as Jews. If you were to have asked Paul, what are you? He would have said, I'm a Jew. Now he would have been a follower of Jesus Christ, but he wouldn't have seen a distinction between those two things necessarily. Now we're going to see, as the Gentile ministry continues to grow, that becomes a point of conflict in the church. In fact, we're going to see that in the very next chapter. But initially, at least, these men still regarded themselves as Jews. And so we're told at the appointed time of prayer, they went up to the temple to say their prayers as good Jews, and on that occasion, they encountered a man who had been lame. And he was begging there for alms. Remember the story? And he sees Paul and Barnabas, or Paul, excuse me, Peter and, and John coming up, and he holds up his tin cup or whatever it was that he was using to beg with, who knows, trying to get their attention. And, and Peter comes up to him and he says, silver and gold we do not have, but what we have we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand and walk. And he took the man by the hand, pulled him to his feet, and all of a sudden the man felt this strengthening in his ankles and he was able to walk for the first time. And uh, I don't know how you picture it. You have to use your imagination a little bit. But I, I sort of imagine uh, John tugging on Peter's arm and saying, hey, listen, we're going to be late for church. Let's, let's come on. And, and so they make their way into the temple precincts. It's almost as if the apostles have become used to this sort of thing. In the wake of Pentecost, miracles were things that they had come to expect that God was going to do through them. And so they, they weren't stunned by the fact that this man had been healed. That's what they did to him. And so they continued on to the temple precincts. But this man was so thrilled that his life was completely changed that we're told he leaped and he jumped and he followed them into the temple courts 
shouting and making a commotion, and before long you had a crowd. And Peter, carpe diem, seized the day, seized the moment. He had a crowd. What does a preacher do? You do one of two things. You either preach a sermon or you take up a collection. So he preached a sermon. That's what he did. He, he preached a sermon and shared the faith. But you'll notice it's reactive. Peter didn't get up in the morning and say, John, what are we going to do? Let's come up with a strategy. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go up to the temple. We'll find some needy person. We'll heal them. That'll gather a crowd, and we'll preach the gospel to them, and the church will grow. There was no kind of strategy of that sort whatsoever. These men simply shared the gospel as the opportunities presented themselves. And there are many opportunities for you and for me to preach the gospel on a daily basis, to share the good news of what Christ has done in our own lives. But the church pretty much operates on that basis. In fact, there's very little of what we would call outreach in those early days. It's for the most part in reach. Read Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to what? To the prayers. So they devoted themselves to caring for one another. And that provoked the outside world to jealousy. When you get to Acts chapter 13, everything changes. For the first time, the church is no longer waiting for opportunities to come to it. The church is not being reactive, the church is being proactive. We're told that church in Antioch of Syria, the church was praying and fasting, and God the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. And the church laid their hands on the two apostles and sent them off. And that was the beginning of the missionary era. The church no longer waiting for opportunities to come to it, but targeting areas where the gospel had never been heard, particularly in Gentile territories, Greek territories, and going out, being proactive. The church on the offensive, the church militant going out into the world. And as a consequence of that missionary activity, the world would be completely changed. In the short span of about three to 400 years, the Roman Empire would be brought completely to its knees. And the very empire that had tried to stamp out the Christian faith would now be subject to it. Let me tell you something. There is no success story in all of history quite like it. Will Durant put it very well. He said, Caesar and Christ met in the arena, and Christ triumphed. So Acts chapter 13 is a remarkable chapter. It's a significant chapter, and it's the beginning of the missionary era, where Paul and Barnabas went off on this missionary activity. And you and I, by the way, are here as a consequence of that. There may be some people here that have Jewish ancestry, but I assume that most of you are of Gentile ancestry. And so you are here today, 2,000 years later, as a consequence of the work that Paul and Barnabas and the others, in particular that church in Antioch, commenced. So Paul went on, ultimately, four missionary journeys. Three or four, depending upon who's counting. If you count his final journey to Rome, then there are four missionary journeys. All right? And they're each described in the book of Acts. The first journey is described, Acts chapter 13, through chapter 14, verse 28. So we are still in the first missionary journey. The second missionary journey is described in Acts chapter 16 through Acts chapter 18. It involves Paul's ministry in Turkey, in Europe, 
Uh, these would be the great cities of the ancient world, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. A uh, few of those cities are still in existence today. Some of them are mostly ruins. Then Paul went on a third missionary journey. That's described in Acts chapter 18 through 20. Um, through Turkey, what is now modern-day Turkey, um, the churches in Galatia, and then to Ephesus, and then eventually back to Jerusalem. And then the fourth missionary journey is described in Acts chapters 25 through 28, and it involves Paul's journey from Jerusalem up the coast to Caesarea Maritima, and then from Caesarea Maritima off to Rome, with a few exciting things along the way, but ultimately to Rome, where Paul would be imprisoned. And um, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome. Now, there are some who argue that Paul was released. Um, Paul's martyrdom is not recorded in the book of Acts, so there are some that argue that Paul was released and went on another missionary journey after that. Some have suggested that he went on to Spain, and then he came back and was ultimately arrested and put to death in Rome during the reign of Nero. Um, it may be, and there are some things to indicate Paul may have gone on to Spain, but we don't have any concrete evidence for that. So it's probably safe to say that Paul went on three, perhaps four, maybe five missionary journeys over the course of his long and fruitful ministry. But we are studying the first of those missionary journeys here in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And so you can see up here on the screen, for those of you who like maps, Paul started off here, in this place, it was called Antioch in Syria. Um, this was a church that had been established as a consequence of persecution. Uh, we're told earlier in the book of Acts that a great persecution erupted in Jerusalem. Uh, the first Christian martyr was killed at that point, Stephen, one of the early deacons. And as a consequence of that persecution, the church was scattered. Now that sounds like bad news, but it actually was, it turned out to be good news. Um, we Christians believe that the great miracle is resurrection and the great miracle is redemption. Uh, my favorite Bible passage, and everybody's got their own favorite Bible passage, but my favorite Bible passage is Romans 8.28. For we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. So even though it was a bad thing that the church was persecuted and the church was scattered, God redeemed the situation. Why? because those who were scattered actually took their faith with them. And so here were these people trying to stamp out Christianity, and incidentally, one of them had been Paul prior to his conversion, trying to stamp it out, but sometimes when you try to stamp out a fire, what do you do? The only thing you do is succeed in spreading it, and that's exactly what happened here. And so we're told that some of those who were persecuted in Jerusalem fled, and they went as far as Antioch. And it was there in Antioch of Syria that this great church was established, this church that would be the epicenter of the missionary era. It was from that church that Paul and his traveling companion Barnabas were sent off. They traveled down the coast to a port city called Seleucia, and from there they took a boat over to the port of Salamis on the Isle of Cyprus. Now that's where Barnabas was from, so this was home territory. That's probably one of the reasons why they went there. It's always a good place to start ministering, a good place to share the gospel is in your own home. Now, for some of us, that means the city of Charleston. What do they say? Charity begins at home. Well, there's some truth to that. 
Sometimes you don't have to even go out into the city. Sometimes you can begin to share the faith in your own home. Not just your hometown, but your own home, even across your own breakfast table sometimes. But that's what they did. They went down to the Isle of Cyprus. They spent some time there. They encountered some opposition, but for the most part, it was a fruitful ministry. Then they took the boat up to the continent again. They landed at Perga in the Roman province of Pamphylia, and they immediately pressed on to the high country. We talked about why that may have been the case. Uh, Paul may have been suffering. We know this from his later letters. He may have been suffering from malaria at that time. But at any rate, they pressed on almost immediately up here into the high country, and they came to Antioch. Now, this is two Antiochs here. There's a Beaufort, South Carolina, and there's a Beaufort, North Carolina. Spelled exactly the same way, pronounced differently. Well, you have two Antiochs in the ancient world, Antioch in Syria and Pisidian Antioch. And we're told that in Pisidian Antioch, and that's what we looked at when we broke off at the end of the last semester, Paul and Barnabas went into Pisidian Antioch. And as was their custom, we're told, they went into the synagogue. Now, they went into the synagogue for two reasons. First of all, they went into the synagogue because they were Jews. Good Jews, and they were going to worship the Lord. So they went into the synagogue. The other reason they went into the synagogue, the synagogue was a great point of contact with the culture to begin preaching the gospel. If you're going to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, you have to find a point of contact with the people with whom you want to share the good news. So you've got to build a rapport. You've got to build a relationship. Listen, that's what Christianity is all about. It's about relationship. You've all heard the old expression, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Sometimes that can be very frustrating. But in Christianity, that's absolutely true. Salvation is not a matter of what you know. It's a matter of who you know. In particular, do you know Jesus Christ? Now, the question is not, do you know about him? There are lots of people that know about God, that know about Jesus Christ, and yet they do not know him personally. If somebody were to ask me, well, do you know the Queen of England? Well, if you mean, do I know about her? Absolutely. Read a biography of her once, found her to be a fascinating lady. I can tell you who she's married to. I can tell you her children. I can tell you when she took the throne. I can tell you who her father was. I can tell you a little bit about her lineage. I can tell you what kind of dog she likes. I can tell you a great deal about the Queen. But if somebody would say, ah, yes, but do you know the Queen? Do you have a personal relationship with the Queen? The answer is no. There are lots of people out there in the world that know a great deal about God, maybe even a great deal about Jesus, but they do not have a personal relationship with him. And you can take my word for it because some of them taught me in seminary. <laughs> so there is a difference between the two, you see. So relationship is at the heart of Christianity. There's no doubt about that. So you have to find that point of contact. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did. And they went in and they went to the synagogue, and because they were foreigners, they were given the opportunity to say a few words, and they did. They took that opportunity to use the Old Testament scriptures to begin to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're told that the crowds were just enthralled. They'd never heard anything like that before. And, and Paul must have been a very persuasive and compelling figure. What I find fascinating about the first missionary journey is that when they initially start off, you read about Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul, 
But about halfway through Acts chapter 13, suddenly it changes and it becomes Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, which tells us that Barnabas had been the senior partner up to that point, but all of a sudden Paul, because he's such a compelling figure, such a compelling preacher and teacher, suddenly ascends to the dominant position. And there's nothing to indicate that Barnabas, humble man that he was, took that with anything but grace. You know, his real name was not Barnabas. His real name was Joseph. The apostles called him Barnabas because it meant a son of encouragement. He was such an encourager. Let me tell you, the church needs people like that. They need encouragers, people of great humility, and that's exactly who he was. So they went in and they preached there. The people were enthralled. So enthralled, in fact, that we're told that when Paul finished his sermon, and I have a feeling it was a rather lengthy sermon, because if you read through it, it, we we get the Reader's Digest condensed version. You know, John Stott once said, sermonettes make Christianettes. And I'm a firm believer in that, in case you haven't figured it out already. (laughs) He preached this sermon, and we're told that when he finished, the people were so enthralled that they followed him home. I've always said that's every preacher's dream, every preacher's wife's nightmare. (laughs) The congregation follows you home, begging to hear more. And we're told, on the next Sabbath, they came back, and we're told the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The whole city. And I think it's interesting what they gathered to hear. Not the word of Paul, but to hear the word of the Lord. That's what Luke, the author of Acts, says. They came to hear the word of the Lord. And the whole city was gathered there. But the Jews, who had been there the week before, when they saw the crowds, were filled with jealousy. Now, you know how this works. And I'm sure the people that were in charge of the synagogue were jealous as well. Not just the congregation, but the leaders of the synagogue. You know how it is. You get up there and you pour yourself out week after week, preaching the gospel, and the same people show up. And then you bring in some guy, probably with an English accent, from some other place, and he preaches, and the place is packed. And we're told they were filled with jealousy. And to make matters worse, they came in and somebody was sitting in their pew. And, and that was the real thing, you see, that was the rub. There's the rub, you know. Who does he think he is? All these people, they never come any other time. Then they show up and they sit in my pew. And we're told that the city was, the people in the synagogue were filled with jealousy. And they began to talk abusively against Paul and Barnabas. Now these were the same people that had followed them home the week before, begged them to come back, but now they're filled with such jealousy that they begin to talk abusively against Paul and Barnabas, and we're told, expel them from the region. Expel them from the region. And we're told that the Gentiles, however, rejoiced and received the word of the Lord, and that's when we ended with that great passage, that great passage on the doctrine of election, where Luke says, and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. And we said, now that's strange because we would expect it to be just the opposite, wouldn't we? We would expect that text to say, and all who believed were appointed to eternal life. But that's not the way Luke puts it. He says, and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. Which tells us that the work of salvation is not the work of human beings. It is the work of God from start to finish, from stem to stern.
And so they left Antioch, and they traveled overland, over here to the east, to Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derbe, these three cities. And that's where we picked up the narrative today. So that's a little bit of background, a little bit of review of this first missionary journey. We're still on this first missionary journey. And the first thing I want you to notice already in this missionary journey is a pattern. A pattern that you will see throughout Paul's ministry. This is the beginning of his ministry, but you're going to see this pattern wherever Paul goes. Now, one of the things I pointed out to you about the book of Acts is that it is not only a record of the early church, the book of Acts, and the reason why we should be studying it is not just because it's history. Now, don't get me wrong. You can derive a great benefit from the study of history. You can learn things for the future. But the most important thing about the book of Acts is that it is a blueprint for ministry today. That's what the book of Acts is. You and I are facing many of the same challenges in our 21st century post-Christian context that Paul faced in his first century Greco-Roman pre-Christian context. Many of the same challenges. And so if we want to know how to effectively minister in our day and age and pass on the the faith. If you were in church on Sunday, I used the image of the Pony Express. If you want to learn how to pass the faith on to the next station so that the gospel continues to thrive in our nation and in the world, then we need to learn how Paul did it in his age. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can follow the example that he set. So the first thing I want you to notice as we begin today and this new semester is the pattern that we find in evidence in Paul's ministry. The first thing that happened wherever Paul went was that he preached the word. Keep your finger there in Acts chapter 14, but look at the last part of Acts chapter 13. Starting at verse 44, I want you to notice one expression that continually pops up. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. You may have a different version, but it should be pretty much the same. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the what? The word of the Lord. Skip down to verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that what? The word of God, or the word of the Lord. You skip on down to verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying what? The word of the Lord. And you skip over to verse 49, and what? And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Isn't it interesting to note that in that short span of only about five verses, the expression, the word of the Lord, is mentioned no less than four times. When Paul went in to a new community, and I suspect that he was a pretty good preacher. Actually, he describes himself as not being a particularly good preacher. He says, when I came among you, I did not come with persuasive words. He said, I I came to you in weakness and frailty and with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. But nevertheless, that's probably humility on Paul's part. I suspect he was a pretty good preacher. I anticipate that he was. But wherever he went, it's interesting to note, he did not preach himself. He preached the word of the Lord. So much of what passes for preaching today is really nothing more than entertainment. It can be very touching Very entertaining, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily healing, my friends. 
I used to always tell my last congregation, study the word of the Lord. And if the preacher in the pulpit is preaching to you the word of the Lord, you are bound to listen to him and to be obedient. But if what's coming out of the pulpit is not the word of the Lord, no matter how entertaining it may be, go someplace else. I remember hearing a preacher on one occasion, very dynamic, very funny. I mean, this guy was funnier than a crutch. And after it was all over, I was walking away from the service with another clergyman, and he said, man, that was just great. And I turned to him and I said, well, what, do you, what was the take-home point? What do you think he was saying to us? And he paused there for about 10 seconds, and he looked up at me and said, I haven't the foggiest idea, but it was really fun. <laughs> Wherever Paul went, he preached the word of the Lord. And he did that because it's the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord never comes back void. Now, sometimes we're told that with the apostles in those early days, the word of the Lord was accompanied by signs and wonders. In 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul refers to signs and wonders and the things that accompany an apostle. But those miracles were designed not to be the end in and of themselves. They were designed to be authenticators. When Jesus performed miracles, he really didn't want people to focus in on the miracles. In fact, on several occasions, he would say to people, now don't tell anybody about this. Just raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he says to her parents, now don't tell anybody about this. Now, of course, what did they do? They went out and told everybody about it. Why did Jesus do that? Two reasons. One, his time hadn't come to be revealed as the Messiah. And the second reason is he knew what people were going to do. They were going to focus on the miraculous, the spectacular, and they were going to miss the man and his message. The emphasis is on the preaching, sharing of the gospel. But here's the second part. Every time Paul preaches... That preaching results in what in the community? Division. Isn't that what happened? We're told they went into the area, they preached the gospel. Initially, there was excitement. Come on back next week. We want to hear more about this. But when they get back, what happens? We're told the whole city gathered, and some were filled with jealousy, and they began to talk abusively. So wherever the gospel is preached, you will discover that there will be division. Jesus himself said this. Take a look at Matthew chapter 10 for just a moment. I know some of you are on your uh, cell phones, and that's fine. As I said all the time, I assume you're reading the Word and you're not on eBay or social media or anything like that, but you will find it sometimes difficult to go back and forth on your cell phone in a way that you won't find it as difficult to do if you actually have a, a text in front of you. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Listen to what Jesus said. Now, we say, when Jesus was born, the angel said what? Fear not, for we bring you glad tidings of great joy, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus came to be the Prince of Peace. Well, is that what Jesus says here? Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, he said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. 
For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. For whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will ever surely find it. I haven't come to bring peace, but to bring a what? Sword. I will bring division. Now, why did Jesus say that? Well, he didn't come into the world for the whole purpose of dividing. But he understood that that is what the truth does. That is what the light inevitably does. When you shine light in a dark place, what generally happens? Well, a number of things happen. One thing is that it causes the creatures of the night to scatter, doesn't it? And it reveals things that were hidden. Why is it when you have a romantic dinner, you have that by candlelight as opposed to under the fluorescence? I'll tell you why, because everybody looks better in candlelight. But you turn on the bright lights, and every flaw, every blemish, every crack, everything is seen for what it is. And that's what the gospel is, isn't it? It comes in and it shines a light. Isn't that what it does? Jesus is the Savior of the world. How many of you would agree that he is the Savior? Here's the problem with being a Savior. That implies that there is something from which we need to be saved. From what do we need to be saved? Well, from sin, from ourselves. How many sinners do we have in the room tonight? I'm glad to see it. We're all sinners. And as bad as you think you are, you're worse. That's the honest truth. We don't like to think of it that way. But somehow, somehow, we find that effect. You know, it's fine to stand up in church on Sunday and sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But if I call you a wretch, there's going to be trouble in there. And so when Jesus came into the world and began to tell people that they needed to be saved, they took offense. And when Paul went into the community and he began to preach to these people, these Jewish people, that they were not good, that they were not saved, that they were in desperate need of salvation, that the law was not enough to save them, we're told they took offense. And there was division. There'll always be division when the light comes in. When I was a kid, um, we used to go out and in Pennsylvania, we didn't have all of the, the dangerous snakes that you have down here. And, and, and most of you know that I have a phobia about snakes. I absolutely despise them. But I had friends, um, you know, little boys in those days. We just, in the summertime, our mothers kicked us out of the house early in the morning, and we didn't come home until nighttime. And nobody had cell phones, and unless they heard a siren or something, they assumed you were okay. I mean, it was just a different world in those days. And whoever's house you landed at, they fed you lunch. I mean, that was just the way it was. 
But these boys that I ran around with in our neighborhood used to love to go out, and one of the things they did in the woods was look for snakes, mostly garter snakes and grass snakes and that sort of thing. But what you do is you go out into a field and you would try to find an old log or a piece of plywood that had been there forever. And the first thing you do is you pull that up and stand back. And the minute that the light hit it, what do you think you saw? Every creepy, crawly thing you can imagine scampering for cover. And you'd flip that over. And the second thing you'd see was all of this grass that was beaten down and white and sickly. But if you came back five days later, that grass that was white and sickly would be alive and well and flourishing. That's what the light of the gospel will do. It's going to do one of two things in a person's heart. It's either going to reveal all their cracks, their flaws, and their blemishes, and as a consequence, they're going to scamper for cover. Or what? They're going to be warmed by that light. Isn't that how John Wesley described his conversion? I found my heart strangely warmed. The question is, what's the case for you? The more you recognize the sin in your life, the more you will love Jesus Christ as a Savior. That, that's the challenge. Lord, reveal to me the sin in my life. Because there are some things that we are guilty of that we're not even aware of. And it's not just that we, what we do outwardly. It's the motivation of our hearts. We can be doing all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. And God is not simply interested in what we do, but why we do it. Isn't that what we say in the Collect for Purity? That's why they call it the Collect for Purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom what? No secrets are hid. Oh, boy. How would you feel if next week I could put up here on the screen all the secrets of your heart? If I, if I were going to pick Brian McGreevy, you know, I'm glad you're there today, Brian. Uh, because he works for me, he can't go anywhere. The rest of you can all desert me. But I'd say, Brian, I have this, this magic machine, and I can look in, and I have seen all the secrets of your heart. And next week, at the Acts Bible study, I'm going to display all the secrets of your heart on the screen. How many of you think Brian's showing up for that show next week? <laughs> You want to talk about getting rid of a class full of people. That's how you do it. But that's how it is with God. And the reason we wouldn't show up is because, let's be honest, we all have secrets. We all have skeletons in the closet, and we're all ashamed of those things, and yet Jesus Christ sees them all, and he loves us. And he came to deliver us from those things. There is no feeling in the world that is worse than guilt. Christ came to lift that guilt, that burden of guilt from our shoulders. That's what he came to do. But I'll tell you, when somebody points that out, when somebody tells you you're a sinner and a miserable offender, that's the language of the old prayer book, miserable offenders. When that's revealed, boy, I'll tell you, one or two things are going to happen. You're either going to take that and rejoice that there's a Savior, or you're going to take offense at it. And that's exactly what happens. So wherever the gospel is preached, there will always be division. There will be division. The division always results 
in persecution. What happened? Paul went in. He preached the gospel. There was division in the community. And we're told that the next thing that happened on the part of those who were offended, they began to do what? Talk abusively against Paul and Barnabas. And eventually have them thrown out of the community. We need to realize as Christians living in this particular time, this particular age, that the gospel is going to be offensive to people. It's just the way it is. We have been living in a protected environment for a long time. But we're beginning to see that as the culture becomes more secular, it is becoming more antagonistic toward the Christian faith. You all know that we're involved in this ugly litigation. And one of the things that I like to point out to people is that people will say, well, you people left. We haven't left. The reality is we're being persecuted because we haven't changed. Because we are holding to the faith of our fathers and our grandfathers. The faith once delivered to the saints. And it's hard for anybody to believe that that's happening in America today, but it's happening in America today. Our First Amendment rights are under assault, the right to the free exercise of our religion. I wrote an op-ed in the paper uh, this past week, and um, I decided not to look at the online comments until last night. <laughs> and I began to look at the online comments, and one of the people said, because you do not accept all people. Now, that certainly isn't true, but of course, that's what you get tarred with. They said, you have no rights. You see, that's the attitude today, isn't it? If I don't agree with you, and I don't agree with the culture, then what? I cede my rights. Now, that's the world in which we're living. My only point in telling you this is that we need to get ready for that as Christians living in this world. Paul was ready for that. He was not surprised by it. That doesn't mean that he looked forward to it. It's just that he acknowledged that that's the way it was. Up to this point, the only persecution most of us ever faced is somebody might have shunned us at a cocktail party. You know, that happens. Do you ever notice you go to a cocktail party, and, and you can be at a cocktail party, and people can be talking about Islam. And, and Muhammad, or they could be talking about Buddha, and everybody's there, and they're engaged in the conversation, and everybody thinks you're so bright and erudite. But if you say, let me tell you about Jesus Christ, boy, that stops the clock. All of a sudden, everybody, I'll be right back. Got to fill up my drink, and, I'll, and you never see them again. And we're in a so-called Christian nation. So I simply want you to be aware of the fact that wherever the gospel is preached, there will be division. And on the part of those who reject the message, there will oftentimes be persecution. And that was the case for Paul and Barnabas. But here's the fourth part of the pattern. Even though there was persecution, even though they were expelled from the region, there was still growth. I love that. There was still growth. We read in verse 48 of chapter 13, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and what? 
And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men in the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them from their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So there's the pattern for ministry. You see it so clearly in the first place Paul goes, almost the first place, Pisidian Antioch. He preaches the gospel. The gospel comes as a light. There's division in the community between those who accept it and those who reject it. On the part of those who reject it, there is what? Persecution stirred up against the messengers. And even though they are expelled from the region, nevertheless, what happens? There's growth. The word of the Lord spreads. Why? Because it's the word of the Lord. It's not the word of Paul. It's the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord, the prophet Isaiah says, never comes back void or empty. That should be a message of encouragement to us as Christians. You and I have a message to proclaim. The world doesn't always want to hear it, although the world needs to hear it. The world doesn't always want to hear it. There are going to be people that are going to hate us because we are proclaiming that word. But here's the good news. It never, ever comes back void. Now, you may not see the benefit of it in your own lifetime. That's why many of us like to mow the grass. Because when you mow the grass, you can see the work done. I've accomplished something. Christian ministry is not like that. Sometimes it's generations before you see the fruit. I remember years, must have been 11 years after I had left St. David's in Chiral, a lady wrote me a note and told me that during my ministry, she had rejected almost everything I'd said, but after I had left, she began to think more and more about the things I'd said, and she'd given her life to Christ. I didn't know that. She was a thorn in my side. I didn't know it until 11 years later. Sometimes we will never know it. Sometimes all we are doing is planting a seed, but it's up to God to water that seed and to make it grow. So that is the pattern of behavior that we see here in Pisidian Antioch. And as Paul goes on to Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derbe, we are going to see that same pattern played out. Jesus tells the same thing in the parable of the sower, doesn't he, in Matthew's Gospel. He said, a sower went out one day to sow seed. And when he threw out the seed, in those days you didn't um, just dig furrows and then plant a little seed, You, you threw it out liberally. And he said, sometimes the seed falls on hard soil, the hard path. And it has no chance of taking root. And what happens? The birds of the air come down, swoop, and take it away. Sometimes the seed falls on rocky soil. And it appears to have life, and it springs up initially. But then what happens? Because it has no root, when the sun comes out, it withers and it dies. He says, sometimes the seed falls on good soil, but as it springs up, It's surrounded by thorns and thistles, and they choke out the life of the seed. He said, only a quarter of the time does the seed fall on good soil and spring up and produce fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. And Jesus went on to explain to his disciples what that meant. He said, the seed is the word of God. The sower is the messenger. And the soil... That's the heart of a man or a woman. Some of our hearts are hardened. They're calloused. The Greek word is skleros, hard, from which we get the term scleroderma, hardened. 
calloused. The word just glances off. Sometimes there's, initial, there's, there's that initial excitement, but when you realize the Christian life's not easy, it's the way of the cross, there's the cross before there's the crown, you wither and you fade away. Sometimes you have the potential for life, but the things of this world just choke out whatever productivity you may have had. But sometimes, sometimes that word falls on good soil and it begins to produce fruit. And Jesus says, that's how you know a believer. You'll know them by their what? The fruit. You don't have to be an expert in horticulture. If you see a tree out there and it's got apples on it, it's a pretty safe bet it's an apple tree or an orange tree or a pear tree. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. So Paul goes onto Iconium and he throws out the soil or the seed. It falls on the soil. What happens? Well, we're going to see this pattern played out in these three cities. Here what we're going to see is the persecution, is the persecution. Because we're told that when they arrived there and they began to preach, what happened? We're told that there were those Jews who stirred up the Gentiles, look at verse 2, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, where were these Jews from? These were the same Jews that had traveled from Antioch to Iconium and stirred up and poisoned the minds of the listeners against Paul. Poisoned their minds. Now, what does it mean to poison their minds? This passage says, talk abusively. We know probably what they were saying. This is one of those uh, occasions where it's helpful to read secular history alongside the biblical history to get a little bit of insight. In the year 190 A.D., there appeared on the scene an apocryphal story. The apocryphal stories of Paul and Thecla, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, circa 190. Uh, the book of Acts is sometime in the mid-60s is when this book is, is being circulated. Okay? Uh, there's no reference, for example, to the destruction of Rome, in, which took place in 70 AD. So, around six, so this is 130 years later. But 130 years later, there was this book that appeared on the scene, an apocryphal book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And the story is that Paul had an illicit affair with a woman in this area called Thecla. And as a consequence, the people had him expelled from the region. Now, there's no evidence anywhere for this, aside from this apocryphal book, which appeared, incidentally, 130 years later. But it tells us the sort of things that they may have been saying against Paul. They're not just arguing against his theology. They're saying wicked, evil, destructive things against him. The same sort of thing that they said against Jesus. They, they accused Jesus of what? claiming to be a king when they had no king but Caesar. They accused Jesus of threatening to tear down the temple. Now, did Jesus ever claim to do those things? No. What they did is they took his words and they twisted them. He was a king, but he also made it very clear to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. At which point Pilate thought, well, that's no threat to me. 
Jesus did say that he would tear down this temple. But what did he say? I'll rebuild it in three days. Which was a clear indicator that he wasn't talking about the temple up there on the mount. He was talking about what? The temple of his own body. But what they did is they took his words and they twisted it. And let me tell you something. That's what people will do. If they hate you, if they hate what you do, they will take your words and they will twist them. And that's exactly what they did to Paul. And that's why the expression poisoned their minds. They poisoned the minds against the apostles. Now here's the question. When that begins to happen, how are we as Christians supposed to respond? You know, as I, somebody asked me recently, what is this whole lawsuit all about between the diocese and the Episcopal Church? And I, I pointed it out a couple of weeks ago in the rector's forum. I can tell you what it's all about. It is all about authority. That's what it's all about. Now, if you ask the people who are oftentimes writing the paper or writing the articles, what are they going to tell you it's about? Sex. They're going to say that those people in the Diocese of South Carolina or St. Philip's or St. Michael's or whatever, they're homophobic. And the fact of the matter is, many of us have people who struggle with their sexuality in our own families. And one of the questions I always ask people is, I've been here for a whole year at St. Philip's. I know people still introduce me. This is our new rector. I'm wondering how long do I have to be here before I become just the rector? I guess it's about 50 years. But at any rate, how many of you have ever heard me preach a single sermon on sex? I think I said two weeks ago, and everybody thought it was kind of funny. I said, you know, they would think that we have sex on the brain, which is a weird place to have it. I mean, we just, that, that's what we, that, that, in their mind, that's all we think about. But it simply isn't true. But how do you counter that sort of thing? When people begin to twist and say, well, that's what it's all about, that's what they're concerned about, they're bigots, they hate these sorts of people, what do you do with that? Well, I think the best thing we can do in that kind of a situation is follow the example of Jesus. Turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 53, which is perhaps the most brilliant picture of Jesus anywhere in the Bible, and lo and behold, it's in the Old Testament. Written centuries before Jesus ever appeared on the scene or was born in Bethlehem. But listen to what you get in Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, and yet he opened not 
his mouth. Did you notice that? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before shears to silent, so he opened not his mouth. You know, when people begin to attack you, what you want to do is defend yourself and attack back. And there's no indicator that Paul did that at all. The only indicator that we got is that Paul took that opportunity to pour himself into preaching the word with even greater strength. The best defense, my friends, is a good offense. And by a good offense as Christians, I don't mean that we attack the other side in return. Jesus was silent before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate said, Do you not know that I have the power to release you or to condemn you? And we're told that Jesus was silent and opened not his mouth. In the world today, the best thing that we can do when we are attacked, when we are labeled, is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, to live out the Christian life, and as I said last night in the homily, if you were here for the 530 service, Present your credentials as an ambassador for Christ to the world. And what are the Christian's credentials? Love. Not that mushy sentimentality. When Paul in 1 Corinthians says, love is always patient and always kind, I asked the question last night, how many of you are always patient and always kind? Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Let me tell you, that's hard when somebody's attacking you, isn't it? That tells us that love is an act of the will. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling, my friends. I don't care what the Beatles said in 1967. It's not a feeling. Brian, what are all those songs? Hooked on a feeling? What is it? There you go. There you go. I knew he'd be able to come up with those, like a Rolodex. There it is. It's not a feeling, my friends. It is an act of the will. So where do you gain the strength and the will to love when you're being attacked, to love the unlovable? You only find that strength from the one who did it himself. Who on the cross, as they pierced his brow and they pierced his hands and his feet, and plunged that lance into his side, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus Christ had that kind of love. He alone has that power, and he alone, if you have a relationship with him, can give you the power to love like that. That's what Paul did. And as a consequence, in spite of the persecution, the word of the Lord spread. God can still do that with us today. It's not easy, but that's the pattern that you and I are going to face. We're going to see this pattern acted out in Lystra. We'll see it acted out in Derby and in every other place that Paul went. If you're going to share the gospel, my friends, it's going to bring division. Sometimes you're going to share the gospel. It's going to bring division in your own family. They're not going to like to hear it. And what are they going to do? Sometimes they're going to talk abusively against you. That's a form of persecution. And it's difficult. And when that persecution comes, it is hard. What do you do? You pray for the grace to respond in love, knowing that the word of the Lord never comes back void. That's where we are in our world today. 
same place Paul was in the first century. That's where we are in the 21st century. We've been living, most of us, in a culture where we have been inoculated with a weak form of Christianity. You know what happens when you get a vaccination or an inoculation? There are doctors out there that will probably tell me the difference between the two. I'm not sure. But whatever it is, you get injected with a weak form of the illness, don't you? And the result is that you grow immune to the real thing. We've been injected with a weak form of Christianity here in America for many years, and as a consequence, we have grown immune to the real thing. And what we see with the Apostle Paul is the real thing produces real rejection, but also real results. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for what we see here in the book of Acts. It is not just a record of the church in the past. It is a blueprint for how we are to do ministry today. We do live in difficult times, Lord. But we have a message that the world desperately needs to hear. We are missionaries in our culture, in our city, in our homes. Grant us the grace to share the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to share that with humility and to share it in love. And when we are persecuted, when there is division, grant us the grace to respond with love and with compassion and with a desire to share the gospel evermore, knowing that the growth is up to you. Our job is to be faithful, O Lord, not successful. So give us strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, when you come back next week, we'll take a look at Lystra and Derby. A fascinating story in Lystra.